And I am looking forward to the rest of the story, as it were. Those weren't the only prayers that we prayed this Sunday. I'm looking forward to hearing about the answers to the rest of them. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. If you look at the top of your handout, it's going to look exactly the same as last week's handout, uh, but it's not. <laughs> I didn't change the title. It is, it is a continuation of last week. We weren't able to finish. Uh, so we're still talking about the nature of our enemy, but this will be part two. Amen. Genesis 22 and 17 says that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seeds as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seeds shall possess the gate of his enemies. The last part of that verse is talking about uh, the idea that God's people are going to be in a battle. We are going to be in a fight. And fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, but <clears throat> it doesn't change the fact that as soon as we're born into the kingdom of God, we are born into a spiritual battle. And we are going to remain in this spiritual battle until we're dead or until Jesus comes. That's when we get to retire. Uh, it, one guy said that uh, uh, we don't get robes until heaven. Down here on earth, we're issued armor and weapons. And those are what we need to don. And those are what we need to put on. So, this idea that we have an enemy or enemies is... Not a new thing, certainly in Scripture. We read all through Scripture about God's people fighting, God's people conducting war, uh, pushing the enemy back, being pushed back by the enemy. Uh, it's all through Scripture. Even in the New Testament, we read about spiritual battles. Obviously, in the New Testament, we're not taking our sword, literally, and chopping people's heads off. Uh, that's not how we conduct war today. Uh, I hope that's not disappointing. If that's disappointing, you scare me. <laughs> but uh, we conduct more spiritually. Uh, toward the enemy of our soul, we ought to literally have that kind of a mindset where we want to take the sword of the Spirit and lop his head off. And that's okay. That's okay to think that way toward the enemy of our soul. That we show no quarter, we ask no quarter. We show no mercy to the enemy of our soul. Because he will show no, no mercy to you. He will show none. He hates you. He despises you. He wants to see you destroyed. That's all he does. That's, that would make him very happy. Thank you very much. If you would just walk away from God and let yourself be destroyed. But God wishes something entirely different. God wishes for our everlasting salvation. God wishes us to experience life and that more abundantly. To experience life eternally with Him. And so we have this war going on. 
This war has been going on for a very long time. And should the Lord tarry, it will continue to go on until he comes again. Last week we talked about one enemy of our soul, Satan, Lucifer, that old serpent, the devil. We talked about his history, his past. We talked about his fall. Uh, we talked about some of his, uh, his characteristics, his nature, that he's a murderer, that he's a liar, a deceiver, and that he hates the truth and that he will do everything he can to warp it, distort it, destroy it. We talked about a few of his strategies, certainly not all-inclusive, but some of the most common ones. Uh, temptation, accusation, fear, doubt, discouragement, distraction, lies or false doctrine. All of these things will come against us. And the more, the more we're going to look into this and the more we begin to understand the, the, the potency and the variety of forces that are arrayed against us, we start to see the miracle that is our salvation. We start to understand how desperately we need God. Because we are in and of ourselves, there's nothing we can do against any one of these things. Any one of these things would completely destroy us by ourselves. But with God, when we walk with Jesus Christ, none of them, none of them together can touch a child of God. Because He gives us power, He gives us authority over them, He gives us victory over these things. Praise God. Tonight we're going to talk about a few of the rest of our enemies. Okay? Uh, the position that Satan holds is kind of what we're going to be focusing on next. This world system. Now, we know John 3.16. And in John 3.16, we, we, we read that Jesus loves the world. We're also going to read a scripture that says, love not the world. Okay, this is two different things. In John 3.16, the world he's talking about is the world of people, the people that inhabit the world, those we are to love. We love the people of this world. We love the lost. We love the sinner. I was a sinner. I was lost. And God loved me. God reached out to a person that hated him, who lived contrary to his laws. He reached out to, to me, and he picked me up, he cleaned me up, and he set me on my high place. Praise God. But the world we're talking about tonight is this world system of which Satan is head. In Ephesians 2.2, 2, the Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, referring to the devil. John 12 and 31, Jesus refers to him as the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the god of this world. Presently, Satan is the one who heads up this world system. And all of the resources of this world system are being focused and they are dedicated on moving people everywhere away from God. 
This world system is designed by Satan from the ground up to destroy your faith in God, to move us away from God toward anything else, anything but God. Focus on a career. That's great. Get all the worldly success you can, you can stomach. Fantastic. Or don't. Enjoy the pleasures of sin. Abstain from the pleasures of sin. Whatever you desire, but don't serve Jesus Christ. This world system will move you away. That's what it's designed to do. And so, realizing that, realizing that this world system is our enemy, and that it is designed from the ground up to destroy us, to kill us, why would we want anything to do with it? Why would we want to entertain anything out there? There's nothing out there for us. There's nothing out there for a child of God. Understand that every step we take toward the world is a step away from God. The two are diametrically opposed. We have got to avoid the world and we've got to separate ourselves from it. When the Bible says, talks about separation, being sanctified, separated from the world and to God. We are a peculiar treasure, the Bible says. We are His treasure. We belong to Him. There's nothing out there for us. James 4 and 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now again, the two are diametrically opposed. Every step we take toward the world is a step away from God and vice versa. When we step toward God, we are by definition removing ourselves from the world. And that's a good thing. 1 John 2, 15 and 7 through 17 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Again, they're diametrically opposed. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The love of God and the love of the world are forever contrasted and they are mutually exclusive. You can't have both. You can't love the world and love God. It's one or the other. The Bible talks about the lust of the flesh. Everything this fallen flesh, so we're going to talk about the flesh in a little bit, but satisfying the desires of our fallen nature... Drink, sex, food. Anything that this flesh desires, when we make it a priority to satisfy that, that's wrong. That's wrong. Now lust, the word lust in and of itself is not necessarily a bad word. We can lust after the things of God. And that's good. But the lust of the flesh is not good. 
Lust of the eyes. When we put things before our eyes that are not wholesome, they're not good, we can look at things this way. Is this activity, is what I'm looking at, is what I'm listening to, is that going to draw me closer to God? Or is it going to push me away from God? Another way to look at it is, if Jesus were sitting right here next to me, would I be comfortable watching this? Would I be comfortable listening to this? Would I be comfortable going to this place with Jesus next to me? If the answer is yes, honestly, and you're not just saying that so you can go do what you want to do. If it's honestly yes, fantastic. Go enjoy yourself in that good activity, that wholesome whatever. But if the answer is no, then there's no good reason to do it. There's no good reason to follow after those things. Ah, but I really want to. Boy, I really enjoy that. That's probably true. But those are some things that we need to learn to say no to because those are the enemies of our soul. The pride of life. Knowledge. Position. Success. Understanding that when I compare myself to someone else, I can find someone, sometimes it takes a while, but I can find someone that's not as good at at something as me. I'm better at so-and-so at this. I know how to play chess. I know how the pieces move. I don't really know any strategies. So, uh, if, if you're at that level, I'd love to play you. I love playing the game. But if you know any strategies or so-and-so gambit and whatever, then I'll watch you play someone else and I'll try to learn. Because <laughs> I can already tell you how that's going to go. You win. Uh, but we can find people that will make us feel good about ourselves. In that, in that aspect, I'm better than they are. I'm a better person than they are. I'm, 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 I'm closer to God. I pray more than that person. I know more scripture than that person. I'm doing okay. Even in things that are spiritual, we can, we can succumb to the pride of life. We can succumb to the idea that I'm doing pretty good. And at that point, you're probably not. This world system is designed to pull these things out of us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You drive down the road. You look at a billboard. You pull up a YouTube video and you get an ad. Those things are sometimes hideous. You listen to the radio. You listen to someone just walking down the street. The language people use today. Just sitting in a restaurant. It's just awful. I used to listen, I used to hear that stuff on the construction site. I kind of 
you know, I hated it, but I kind of, you know, that's the kind of people that work construction. A little bit rough around the edges. Okay, fair enough. But I see people coming in in suits and ties talking like that. I see women coming in. Nice-looking, dressed, nice women talking like... Sailors. Yeah, if Brother Shepard were here, he'd probably... <laughs> Maybe he'd confirm that or deny it, I don't know. But... uh this world is waxing worse and worse. And the system that this world is based on is pulling it there. We want nothing to do with it. The next enemy we'll talk about is our flesh. Romans 7, verses 19 through 25 says this. For the good that I would do, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin." There's an awful lot in this passage of Scripture. Uh, I get that. We're just going to focus on a few things and move on. Our flesh is at war with the Spirit of God. Okay, there are two camps. There are two sides resident within each of us. Those that are born again. There is our old nature and our new nature. Our old nature is the one, of course, that we were born with. We were born spiritually dead. We were born in sin. We were born in bondage to Satan. When Jesus redeemed us from that, He regenerated our dead spirit. He brought that to life again. Now, we have two natures in us because the old nature hasn't been completely destroyed yet. The old nature, we'll talk a little bit later about that, it'll be with us for the rest of our lives. But, there is a new nature now. And it is in constant struggle with our old. Jesus Christ wants us to be Christ-like. Jesus wants us to live holy and righteous and separate from this world. Our old nature wants the exact opposite. Again, they are diametrically opposed. We can't have both. There is no straddling the fence, as it were. It's one or the other. And so, understanding that when we're born again, this is part of the battle, this is part of the war that we enter into against ourselves, our old natures. We have to fight that as well. Our old natures and the new nature struggle against each other. These two camps are diametrically opposed. They will, there will never be peace between them. There will never be compromise. Both sides want one thing. The other's absolute and unconditional surrender. That's it. That's what both sides want. Our fallen nature wants to kick God to the curb and keep living the way we used to. Our new nature 
wants to kick our old nature to the curb and start living for Jesus Christ completely. Completely sell out to Him. Do everything that pleases Him. And it's one or the other. There, there cannot be any compromise between the two. John 3 and 6 says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, when we're born again, our flesh remains unredeemed. Our flesh will never be redeemed. This flesh that we inhabit right now, someday, should the Lord tarry, my kids will plant me, because I'll be gone. And my, this flesh will return to the dust from whence it came. It will not be redeemed. It's going back to dust. I could say all kinds of things about that. <laughs> I want to be a good steward of this. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that God gave me the body that I have. Okay? But, I'm not going to miss it. Once it's gone, good riddance. I, I have no love for this flesh. It's given me nothing but problems. It wants me to die. It wants me to, to reject God. And the struggles that I've experienced with it, I'm not going to miss them. I won't. This flesh will not be redeemed. It will be our enemy until we become separated from it, i.e. we die, or until the rapture. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. At this point, we are delivered once and for all from this enemy. Today, we could crucify it, weaken it, defeat its desires and lusts, but we cannot achieve absolute, permanent victory over it. Paul said, I die daily. There's a reason he dies daily. Because every day it keeps popping its ugly head back up. We can crush it. We can treat it like, just be absolutely ruthless with it, and we need to. When it speaks to us, we need to tell it to shut its mouth. But it keeps coming back. And it'll come back, like the enemy does, at the most inopportune time. When you're tired, when you're weak, when you're frustrated. That's when it'll start talking. After this, when he does give us a glorified body, that body will be in perfect sync with God's will. It will be perfectly submitted to God. It will naturally, naturally want the things that God wants. And this is perhaps my favorite it will allow us to stand in the direct physical presence of God. We won't burn away in His presence. We won't be destroyed in His presence. 
We'll live forever in His presence. I'm looking forward to that. Last enemy we'll talk about tonight is death. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Okay, so here we find that death is the direct result of sin. Death didn't originate until mankind sinned. Now, the one man referred to in this passage of Scripture is Adam. Because Adam sinned, death entered into the universe. Death entered into creation. It wasn't a part of creation before that. It was never meant to be a part of creation. Death was never supposed to be here. Because of sin, we experience both physical and spiritual death. Again, death is by definition a separation. Physical death, the spirit separates from the body. Spiritual death, our spirits are eternally separated from Jesus Christ. We are born spiritually dead. In other words, we're born separated from God. God is holy. He will not dwell where sin is. In the physical, we're going to die eventually. Should the Lord tarry? Nobody lives forever. Not in this flesh anyway. The flesh will die. The corruption and the degeneration of sin resident in our, our, our fallen flesh will destroy it at some point. 1 Corinthians 15 and 26 says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Here we understand that death is an enemy. It's not a part of the natural order of things. It is our enemy. It wasn't supposed to be here. It's never. It was never part of God's plan to incorporate death into His creation. God considers it our enemy and something to be defeated. Now, as an aside, this, this idea that death comes as a result of sin uh, kind of flies in the face of uh, evolution. Okay? And the only reason I bring it up is because there are, there are Christians that want to compromise good Scripture with bad science. And so they try to, they try to merge the two. They try to combine the two and say that God used evolution to create everything. Okay, maybe you've heard that, uh, maybe not, but any, in any case, it's, it's an idea out there. Well, this passage of Scripture kind of flies in the face of that. Because if there were millions of years of evolution before Adam came on the scene, that's millions of years of death and decay and destruction before Adam sinned. We can't have death before sin. That doesn't work. So, uh, don't compromise good Scripture with bad science. Let Scripture stand all on its own. God created all things by the power of His spoken word. 
1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now Jesus did indeed defeat death once and for all for us. He did that on the cross. Spiritual death and that the gulf of sin has been removed by the blood of Jesus. We are no longer separated from a holy and a righteous God. We're not separated anymore. Jesus destroyed that gulf by applying the blood of Jesus to our lives. His blood cleanses us and removes that gulf of sin. Physical death will be defeated last. The corruption resident in our fallen flesh will be destroyed and will be given a new perfect spiritual body that will never die. It will never die. John 1, 1 through 1-4 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Only God can produce life. God is life. He is life. And everything He touches comes to life. <clears throat> A little bit of science, because science is cool. God made science. God thinks science is cool. Amen. Everybody, anyone ever hear of amino acids? Most of us have heard of amino acids. They're the building blocks of protein. Okay? Uh, you got your essential amino acids and, and all of that. Bodybuilders, they understand all that. But amino acids are the building blocks of life. You need amino acids to build proteins. You need proteins to build more complex structures, cells, things like that. Well, an interesting fact, uh, amino acids, the molecules, they come in, they come in pairs. And they call them uh, left-handed or right-handed. It's uh, chiral is the word. Chirality. Anyway, uh, left-handed and right-handed. They're just kind of mirror images. Okay? In living organisms, all the amino acids are left-handed amino acids. All of them. As soon as an organism dies, though, the amino acids change, and it becomes an even mix of left and right. That's in a dead organism. Only in a living organism you will find all left-handed amino acids. So, let's fast forward from creation, looking back from our present time, to the 50s. There was an experiment done. can't remember the guy's name, but they tried to reproduce amino acids uh, based on what they thought, you know, early, the early Earth environment would be. So they had, you know, little sparks of lightning, and they had ammonia gas and water and, you know, whatever it was. And they actually got a few amino acids. So they're like, okay, we're, we've proved evolution. <clears throat> it's a bit of a, anyway, 
all kinds of things wrong with the experiment. I won't get into that. Uh, but just to say that the amino acids they produced were a mix of left and right-handed amino acids. They produced death. That's what they produced. And that's all we can produce is death. When God touches something, he infuses it with life. Only God can do that. We can produce death in the laboratory, but only God can produce life. John 10.10 says, The thief cometh not but for to steal, and to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Only God can produce life. Only God can restore life to the dead. And only God can defeat death once and for all. There are many examples in Scripture where God actually raises people from the dead. In 1 Kings 17, we see that God uses Elijah to raise the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. 2 Kings chapter 4, God uses Elisha to raise from the dead the son of the Sunamite woman. In 2 Kings 13, God raised from the dead a body that was thrown on the bones of Elisha. A little disconcerting. Luke 7, Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son from the dead. In Luke 8, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In Acts 9, God uses Peter to raise Tabitha from the dead. In Acts 20, God uses Paul to raise Eutychus from the dead. That's partly his fault, though. He just preached too long. Read the story. It's kind of funny, actually. And, of course, uh, Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Acts 2 and 24 says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. And it was not possible that God should be holden of death, because he's the God of life. He chose to lay his life down at his will. That's the only way he could have died, is because he chose to lay it down. And when the time was right, he picked it right back up again. That's what God can do. He died by permission. John 14 and 12 says, Verily, verily, and I'm going to... Wow. I'm going to close with this. Early night. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believed on me the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall ye do, because I go unto my Father. Okay, and this is the thought I want to leave us with tonight. Raising the dead, specifically, because in our minds, that's the, that's the, that's the farthest thing from, from, any of our abilities. There's no way that, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to a cold or, or a, a cut, you know, we know how to deal with those things. You know, chicken soup, bed rest, uh, put a band-aid on, you know, clean it up, put a band-aid on, whatever. If you're on the job site, pour water on it, put duct tape on it. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Good to go. Uh, 
those things that, you know, they're irritating and they're frustrating, but we can deal with them. There's things that we can do. But when someone dies, there's nothing we can do about that. That is so far beyond our ability to do anything about. So when we read in Scripture that God raises people from the dead, okay, yeah, that's something God can do. But then we read, God uses people to raise people from the dead. Okay, now that's something else entirely. And then we read in this last Scripture, God wants to use me to raise people from the dead, to heal the sick, to cleanse the leper, etc., etc., etc. Whatever Jesus did, He wants to use me to do. You and I are to continue the work of Jesus Christ here on earth. Jesus isn't here in the flesh anymore. But He's here in you and me. And we are to continue His ministry. Part of Jesus' ministry, obviously, was to seek and to save the lost. I think we can all agree on that. And that is extremely important. Another part of His ministry, though, I believe equally important is the miracles, the signs, the wonders. Healing the sick, cleansing the lepers. What did He give the 70 power to do? What did He give the 12 power to do when He sent them out? Exactly that. It's part of the ministry that Jesus Christ has given us as the church, as the people of God. And... I don't know about you, but my experiences in God, I haven't seen a lot of that. Not personally when I've prayed, and not externally watching other people pray. I've seen it. But very few and far between. And I don't think that's right. I mean, that's my experience, but it doesn't line up with what I read in the book. And so, at least for me, now i got a problem. Because I want my experience to line up with this book. I think everything ought to line up with this book. And if it doesn't, well, I don't think the Bible has a problem. I don't think the problem is in Scripture. I think the problem is right here. That's where I think the problem is. The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Part of the warfare that God wants us to conduct is exactly this. Destroying the works of the enemy. We are to destroy the works of the enemy. Whatever they are. That's part of the warfare that we need to engage in. We fight against real, external, cunning enemies who hate us and who hate the God that we serve. Okay, We cannot treat these enemies lightly. We can, we've got to take them seriously. We've got to take them seriously. Because I promise you this, they're taking you serious. 
This fight is for real, and it's for blood. It's for people's eternity. Yours, mine, theirs. It's for eternity. And when we stand before the judgment seat of God, thankful that we're we're a part of the covenant people of God, we're also going to have to consider that there will be other people standing in the, before the judgment seat of God who are not part of the covenant people of God. And I pray in that day that my hands are clean. Understanding our enemy and how he operates is necessary in being able to effectively wage war against him. Okay, we cannot be ignorant of his devices. God in every area and on all fronts fights for us. Heals us when we're wounded. Picks us up when we've fallen and will give us ultimate victory if we endure to the end. The battle, if we endure to the end, is already decided. We know the end of the book. We win. In the Old Testament, when Joshua crossed the River Jordan into the Promised Land, he already knew the end of the story. God had already told him, the land is yours, I'm giving it to you. But they didn't possess it yet, did they? They didn't take possession for a long time. They had to first fight the inhabitants. They conducted war on behalf of their God. In the spiritual, God has given us exceeding great and precious promises. But sometimes, folks, there's a battle first. Sometimes there's a fight that needs to be won before we can claim the promise. We've got to know how to fight. We've got to be able to wage war effectively on behalf of our God. Again, we're not fighting in the physical. We don't fight people. We love people. We minister to people. We give ourselves in service to people because that's what Jesus did. Jesus loves them just as much as he loves you and me. But there's an enemy behind the scenes that want to keep them for himself. And he's not going to just, okay, he's yours. Not without a fight. What we've got to answer is, is the fight worth it? Is the struggle worth it? The answer, of course, is absolutely. Absolutely the fight is worth it. The struggle is worth it, both in our lives and when we're fighting for someone else's life. The struggle is worth it. When we see that person in in eternity, that person that was destined for hell, but now he's here beside us in heaven, what an awesome thing that's going to be. God changes destinies. He changes eternities. That's what He does. That's all He's about. 
Everything he does, everything he says, is geared toward that end. To save us, to deliver us, to restore us. Amen. But between that and us, there's a fight, there's a battle. And it's got to be fought. It's got to be fought by you and me. Amen. Let's all stand.